1: He kōna e pūrangi te nei, nā irirangi o ao aroa. Like our changing world Nam Mihi Nui and welcome to our Changing world called Alison Balance Tene. If you're a regular listener, you will have noticed the new opening theme. I made the theme with a big helping hand from sound engineer William Saunders using found sounds from our changing world. There are 20 different sound clips and they all come from stories played on the show in the last three years. Sometime this year, I'll decompose that theme and identify all the sounds for you. In the meantime, listen out to see if you can work out what they are. Later on in the show, we're keeping up with the kākāpō, and there is so much to keep up with. First, though, chemists at the University of Otago are coming up with smarter ways to deliver drugs, and they're doing it at the nanoscale. I catch up with Ing Tan and postdoctoral researcher Sean Mackay to find out what they're doing, and I discover that a couple of rather unusual things
0: have inspired them. We figure out ways to deliver drugs through either skin or to the brain, trying to address issues or problems that currently there is no technology for. So we're developing new technology that will enable us to deliver drugs to places that are difficult to access. So when I think of drug delivery, I think of I might orally take a pill, like I swallow
1: something and it gets absorbed through my stomach or intestine or something. Uh, Someone could give me an injection just under the skin or into my muscle.
0: Yep. Those types of drug delivery methods are what we would call systemic, in that once the drug is either ingested or delivered intravenously through a syringe, it goes everywhere. In that, if it goes through the digestive system, is absorbed through your gut and then it is distributed throughout your body. And same with the intravenous, through your circulatory system, your blood, and it gets delivered everywhere. The issue with that, of course, is that usually when you take a drug, you want it to go to a specific place. If, for example, if you have a headache, you don't really need the drug to be in your foot or your hands. So, our way of getting around it is to basically put the drugs where. It's required, so not all over the place, which gets around the problem of side effects. Basically, if if a drug that was designed for, let's say, treatment of cancer, for example, and it would do its best work at the site of a tumor, but if it went to a place like the heart, for example, which might cause heart damage, and it's not required there, but through systemic delivery, you can't avoid it. So... Our interest is to develop technology to enable us to deliver these things to where it's required and not to the places where it's not required.
1: Sean, what's the challenge you face with, let's just start with skin in the first instance? I mean, my skin is a nice, tight, waterproof substance that holds me together quite effectively.
2: That's exactly the problem with it. It keeps everything out. So the main problem with skin is the top layer is very tightly bound together and it's very difficult to get anything through. So there are certain classes of drugs that will permeate pretty readily. Nicotine is one of them, it's really small. But as soon as you get above a drug of a certain size it becomes increasingly difficult to get it to pass through the skin because it can't fit through the tight little junctions that hold it together. So we've been trying to work on new ways to overcome that issue.
1: Now you've been working on something specific, do you want to tell me what inspired you to work on this?
2: (laughs) We watched an octopus squish through a little tiny hole and figured that the skin is basically composed of cells that are stuck together with little tiny holes between them. That If you could make a particle that could change its shape and squish between them, you could get more drugs through more easily.
0: So what are you holding there, Ng? It's a squishy ball. So it's basically a, a toy, which I think it, most people are familiar with. And basically it's a ball. So it's spherical, it's round. But when when you squeeze it, Oh, so you're giving it a good squeeze yeah. and it's... And you can see that the contents of it kind of moves out of the part that's been constricted to a part of the squeezy ball that's expanded because of the pressure. So the concept of it is that if we can encase the drugs in a very, very small particle that has the same properties as that of a squeezy ball where you kind of squish it and then you move the contents along through the parts that are being constrained and it gets moved along, then we could squish these particles that contain the drugs through the layers of skin and the benefit of that of course is that only the drug that's inside the particle gets delivered through the skin and all the stuff that we don't want to go through the skin and that's why the skin's there it's a protective layer and there's a reason for it you know being there that we don't want to just put something on the skin that just makes the skin permeable which allows everything through because that's that wouldn't be good so it only delivers the things that's inside the particles and it keeps the skin intact. So we're not damaging the skin. So it's very important that we're not damaging the skin in the process.
1: Now, your squeezy ball there is hand sized. What scale are you working at with drug delivery?
0: We're talking nanometers here tens of nanometers. So very, very small. <laughs> a nanometer is 10 to the minus nine meters. To give it a a relative scale, for example, tens of nanometers is smaller than a cell, a uh, skin cell.
2: So I think the width of an average human hair is about 200,000 nanometers. So our particles are considerably smaller than that.
1: How on earth do you go about beginning to invent a nanometer sized drug delivery system that squishes like a squishy ball?
2: With great difficulty.
1: <laughs> Was there- Anything to start with, or was it, is this something you were building right from scratch?
0: We are working on another technology for delivering drugs to the brain. We're kind of expanding on it with the application of drugs to the brains. We're using a nanoparticle system as as well, and in that system, we weren't designing the nanoparticles to be squishy because it wasn't required to be. So, in our current system for the skin delivery, we just we're modifying, or we're using a a different uh, nanoparticle system, which I guess through manipulating the nanoparticle system, we can make it squishy. And how we know that they're squishy is we can see these nanoparticles using uh, electron microscopy. And we take pictures of these nanoparticles to see what they look like. And they do look Squishy, so up against each other. They basically squish up against each other, so they're no longer round. That's how we came up with the term, but squish, because they do look squishy.
1: What kind of materials are you using to make these nanoparticles?
2: They're all biologically compatible, but that's about as much as we can say at the moment.
1: Aha, uh-huh. commercially secret. Hopefully. <laughs> so this is something that you're pretty confident you'll be able to commercialise? It looks promising. So biologically compatible, but still something you're making in a... A chemistry lab?
2: Yeah, so everything's made in a chemistry lab at the moment. It's all in vitro, so it's all made in beakers and test tubes. But all of the materials that we use are non-toxic.
1: So you've got a proof of principle. You've looked at them through an electron microscope. What else have you done with them?
2: Uh, We have a series of model systems that look at how they behave with skin. And we also have synthetic skin models that have been apparently proven to be remarkably similar to human skin and we can accelerate how quickly drugs can migrate through them.
1: So what's going to make the drug go from the outside of my skin, the outside of my body? What's going to make it go through my skin? Is this like osmosis, i.e. What, why isn't it, doesn't it just sit on the surface of my skin?
0: In a sense, the product is going to look something like a cream or a gel. So it's going to be that sort of thing. And, and one of the processes that encourages even moisturisers, for example, that go through the skin, is this evaporative um, process that happens when you apply things on the, sc- um, on the skin. It tends to evaporate, but, but then the environment under your skin is still wet. So these particles like to go to where it's still wet. It's essentially, so in the process of evaporation, these particles, get, for want of a better term, get sucked through these very small um, pores in the, in the skin. So it gets it
1: through my skin, and then what happens with it?
0: Once it gets to the, the top layer, which is the difficult bit, and then once it gets to the bottom layer, uh, we're hoping that these particles will then release their cargo, which is the drug at the site of where these drugs would be required most. So the technology that we've been discussing so far should be applicable to most disorders that are associated with skin, if we want a particular drug at that area, we could use this technology for. But at this stage, we are targeting a very, I guess, quite a specific uh, medical disorder.
2: So the disorder that we're first targeting is infantile hemangioma, which is commonly known as strawberry birthmarks. And they are disfiguring tumors of the vascular system that grow in the first few weeks of childhood. And then after a few years, they usually spontaneously disappear. But with each of them, there's always a risk that the lesion will become really big and really disfiguring. In some cases, they can ulcerate um, if they're left for too long before they're treated. So we're hoping that we can have a way to treat that more effectively and more safely.
1: So is there a drug that already gets used for that, and you are just working on the drug delivery system?
2: Yeah, so the drugs are, the drug is all commonly used in the marketplace. We're just trying to make it that little bit better.
1: The existing drug for dealing with strawberry birthmarks, are you lucky enough that it's a small molecule?
2: It's one of the ones that's on the border. It's very slow in in absorbing, usually, um, whereas we can hope we can speed that up a little bit.
1: How does the drug get released once it's inside? As it
2: squishes, it squishes the drug out as it gets through the bottom layers of skin, and then it can just diffuse throughout the tissue a lot more readily than it could at the top layer of skin.
1: You're targeting medical conditions, developing a drug delivery system. I can't help but thinking that the cosmetics industry might might be very interested in what you're doing.
2: The cosmetics industry is one of the second targets that we're looking at. So the reason we went with Strawberry Birthmarks is that one of our collaborators, um, Sweet Anne, at the Gillies McIndoe Research Institute, is one of the world experts in the disease. So in New Zealand, we have a very deep understanding of how that disease works and how we could try and improve it. Um, Same thing with Parkinson's disease. There's a very strong research community in Parkinson's disease in New Zealand. But absolutely, we have been seriously considering cosmetic applications as well.
0: One of the targets is scarring. Mm. Scars, to treat scars.
2: There's lots of things sold as treatments that don't really have any scientific credibility behind them. So things like rubbing silicon oil on them is supposed to make them a little bit better. But half the time, if you have a very serious keloid scar, the only treatment option is to cut it back out and then in most of the cases it regrows again. Um, so having a treatment option available that can improve the appearance of scars is currently
1: unmet. Can you explain why the brain is a difficult place for us to get drugs to?
0: With the vasculature in the brain, there is a layer basically called the blood-brain barrier. And it's called the blood-brain barrier because it prevents many of our normal chemical molecules that are in the circulatory system to get into the, the brain structure as such, the brain cells. When molecules are required to traverse this blood brain barrier there's usually a carrier system that we that's built in to the organism so we have carriers to carry for example amino acids their nutrients through and drug molecules can be designed to go through the blood brain barrier and some drug molecules do but many of them don't and the difficulty associated with with the blood brain barrier is for example if if we had a, an infection in the brain which could be treated by normal antibiotics. Getting the antibiotic into the brain through your norm, our normal pathways of, for example, ingestion or intravenous delivery, it won't get there because it won't it won't cross the blood-brain barrier. Although it's systemic and it's in us and it's circulating, that's one part of the body that it won't get there. So, I guess it's another challenge for us with drug delivery systems, since it's a, a place that's difficult to get drugs through if we can do it in such a way not only to the brain but to specific areas of the brain. And that's why the other program or project that we're working on is very ambitious in that sense because to be able to deliver drugs like neurotransmitters to very specific areas of the brain, we're talking about a possible treatment for Parkinson's disease, epilepsy. And since... Again, it's just very specific to certain areas of the brain. We could do it in a, in a way that actually mimics how the normal brain functions. So the way that the brain functions normally with neurotransmitters is, is they are little pulses of them. So depending on what we do and our actions, they fire off little pulses of dopamine, for example. So in in the Parkinson's case, our treatment for it is in... In terms of Parkinson's is that there is a general lack of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain. So the treatment of it is just to replace this dopamine level, but not in the natural way that dopamine is produced in the brain, which is in pulses, which it's very difficult to do, for example. If you're putting it through our digestive system, we might swallow a pill, for example, and it's a precursor of dopamine or agonist of, of dopamine, That might go through the brain. But then the levels of this neurotransmitter in the brain just jumps and it stays high for a long time at a very high level, which is not natural. So the brain responds in an unnatural way, and this is where the side effects of some of the Parkinsonian drugs come in. They develop behavioral uh, problems because involuntary responses become rewarded because dopamine is a reward chemical. So involuntary thoughts or actions become rewarded. Whereas what you're proposing to do would be just so much more targeted. And also to replicate the firing pattern, the normal firing pattern of the neurotransmitters, which is in pulses, not as a constant high level that kind of declines over several hours and these little pulses could be in the second timescale. I mean, we've, de- we've developed systems like these that work in pulses of maybe a in few seconds, seconds or milliseconds. So it's possible to, to do, in a, I guess, in a laboratory experimental setup. Trying to get it in vivo, of course, it's, it's much more difficult.
1: Thanks, Ng. That was chemist Ng Tan. We also heard from Sean Mackay a postdoctoral research fellow working in nanotechnology and they are both in the department of chemistry at the University of Otago. mai to tato Hei hōtaka e a tangaroa nui. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World. Now, it's time to catch up with Te Ao Kākāpō, the world of the kākāpō. The Kākāpō Files podcast is up to episode six already, and, quite frankly, there's so much going on that I'm barely managing to keep up. As I'm recording this, the news is that 49 out of 50 females on the two southern islands have mated. That's quite the record. 119 eggs have been laid so far. While 19 have yet to be checked, The Kākāpō recovery team at DOC tell me that they know there are 36 fertile eggs. That is, however, an awful lot of infertile eggs. Of course we know the team is closing down nests and bringing the fertile eggs in to be hand-read, hoping to encourage the females to start all over again. I caught up with Technical Officer Daryl Eason at the weekend, and he and other staff are so busy that it was difficult for him to find time to even answer his phone but I eventually got hold of him. Kia ora, Darryl. I gather you've already had quite a busy morning. It's early afternoon on Saturday the 26th of January. What have you been up to today out on Fenua Ho?
3: Well, I slept in the tent overnight by a nest of Millie's, but I didn't get to look in her nest. So I came down and today we had some sperm left over from Luke. We were hoping to catch Zephyr yesterday for an artificial insemination, but we couldn't catch her because she was up a tree. So we didn't want to waste and lose that sperm. And we ran up and we caught Jean. And we've just done an artificial insemination with her. Hopefully her eggs will be more likely to be fertile, and Luke is a really good match for Jean.
1: And why are you doing artificial insemination?
3: Well, carpal because they're a bit inbred they have a very low fertility rate. It's only about mm, 60%, and they also have quite a few early dead embryos in that first stage of incubation, probably about 18% embryo death. So by the time hatching comes around, you're only around about 40%, so there's a huge loss of eggs. And we are trying to use artificial insemination to improve fertility, and also to improve genetic makeup and prevent more inbreeding going on.
1: Now, of course, we all know about IVF in terms of people and you know sperm collection. That sounds terribly straightforward if you are in a white sterile laboratory in a city, but uh, you are on an island. Birds are all over the place. It's often wet. It's often muddy. Talk me through the process of what it takes to collect sperm from one bird and then artificially inseminate another bird.
3: Well, for a start, it's reasonably physically demanding because there's always a lot of gear you have to carry. I carry a microscope with me and an inverter and some batteries so I can power it and heat it. And we carry a small fridge, just a little one for insulin syringes, as well as the gear that we need to collect the semen. um, We have little tubes and pipettes and various equipment. And the gear that we need to catch and weigh and health check the birds as well. And so most of the males are up on near the top of the island, so it's, that's usually an hour or so from the hut. That's a steep track, muddy track usually, and we have to catch the male. And if things go really well, then we can, we can normally collect his semen in, in five minutes. How do you see? do that? We contain the bird partially in a container so I can just sit him on my lap and he can't bite me. So it's just in a large bottle, actually. Intriguous. Yeah. It has, to, it has to be a very big bottle because male kakafala are very fat and with a bit of a towel around it as well, just to keep it comfortable and keep his head a bit covered. And then I just gently massage down his back from his kidneys down to his vent on his back and underneath by his pubic bones as well. And after several strokes, and usually if the male's really relaxed, then he'll tremor his feet a little bit, and that's a really good sign. And then you can just fold the the tail up, and you can just gently squeeze and express the vent and I've usually got two helpers with me and if there's any semen then they can quickly collect that directly into a peptid. And usually if things go really well we might get 30 to 50 microlitres so it's a very small amount but very concentrated so what we had from Luke yesterday I think there was 6 million sperm per microliter of semen.
1: Six million per microlitre. Now, how do you work that out? Is that why you have the microscope with you?
3: Yes. They so you take the microscope and you can make an immediate assessment and you just check the motility and how well it's moving. Make sure that the sperm is in good condition, that the morphology is normal, um, that they, they aren't bent or damaged. And then you, you count them on a grid under the microscope. And
1: I was going to say you didn't sit there and count six million, did you?
3: No, no. So you're just you're just counting a few squares worth, and and working out the dilution and the volume that you would have put in, and you can do the math to work out the, the count.
1: Got this precious semen sample. It's full of sperm. What next?
3: We put it in a small vial and put it in our miniature fridge that we can carry with us and keep it at about five degrees. And that just slows it down and to stop any energy loss and just keep it calm because we don't want it to be busy, actively swimming and using all its energy. And then we we head over to our female. And we that's probably mated within the last three to seven days, so that's about the perfect timing before she starts laying eggs. And we. If we're lucky, which we weren't yesterday, when we went to Zeppa, who was probably 40 minutes walk from from Luke, we tracked her in with the radio telemetry gear and found that she was probably six metres, six or eight metres up a tree, and there was no way we were going to be able to catch her because the trunk was straight. (laughs) We couldn't climb.
1: (laughs) So Kākāpō are flightless, but they're pretty good at climbing trees, aren't they?
3: Yeah, they're fantastic at climbing trees. They're very good. So that, that's always disappointing because we, can't, we, we don't want to go and check the female first because quite often if you go and see her and think, oh, great, she's in a perfect catching spot on the ground, by the time you come back later she's probably moved and gone up a tree because she's thought, oh, I don't want to be seen here. So you've just got to take it as it comes. And, and most of the time we actually catch them, but every so often one will be up the tree. So this time I've just had two in a row. I had Jean two days ago and Zephyr yesterday both up trees. Um, But today we ran up and we caught Jean just as she was walking up a tree. So we had still the climbing but managed to catch her.
1: How many females have you done AI with then?
3: This year is the first one with Jean. But in the past we've just done a few birds and we've had two successful clutches fertilised with AI sperm. And so that gives us confidence that it can work and we just need to work on refining a few of the techniques and once we've got it sorted, it could be a really useful management tool to increase uh, productivity.
1: Now you've already mentioned, and we've talked on the kākāpō files before, about the fact that the more times a female mates, the more... Likely her eggs are to be fertile. So that's obviously one reason you're doing this. Why else are you doing it?
3: Because m- many of the males, because of the way that Kakapo breed in the lek system, they don't pair up. So a lot of the males just miss out on mating because females are attracted to a few individuals rather than evenly spread. And a lot of the males are not represented in the next generation we've still got several founder males left that were found in the 1980s that have never produced offspring. If we just leave them they never will and our gene pool for kakapo will get even lower which means the infertility and inbreeding problems will probably get worse. So it's really important to try and do something now um, to, to make sure that the health of the Kākāpō population the genetic health is is good before it gets too big and too inbred.
1: Now, we were in discussion on text the other day and you said there was some good news about Gulliver. Can you tell me what that news is and explain why that's significant?
3: Gulliver mated, was it the night before last? Yes, two nights ago, with two females, Ponamu, who's never mated before, and Suzanne, about two hours after Ponamu. So that was his first mating this season, um, so two in a row, so that's great. And the reason that it's a really good thing is that Gulliver is the son of the last, the Orden bird, the last South Island bird to survive. So all the rest of our birds come from Stewart Island. And so that provides some really valuable genetic resource that will help birds in the future to improve their fertility if we can incorporate his genes into the new generation.
1: Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for um, Gulliver babies. He has a brother, Sinbad. What's Sinbad been up to this breeding season?
3: Well, so far, Sinbad has just mated with Tohu. Tohu mated with two males, but unfortunately her two eggs were infertile. So we've taken Tohu's eggs away now and we'll give her a chance to mate again. So far, um, no other females have have chosen him this year, but he's a very, very good male to collect sperm from. So um, hopefully we'll be able to use him for AI, especially in the second round of death.
1: Thanks, Daryl. That was Technical Officer Daryl Eason from DOC's Kākāpō recovery team and a key member of the sperm team. Episode 6 of the Kākāpō Files also features an interview with Kākāpō Island Ranger Jake Osborne. And to check out the full thing head to rnz.co.nz slash kākāpō. All the episodes are also on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to Our Changing World and to the Kākāpō Files as podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all the usual places. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me. Alison Balance, Kia Paitopo. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
0: For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877 351 0300.
1: Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name.